Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, we had a really interesting, I thought, special podcast this week um, that's not Scientology-related, so I, I know some folks aren't going to be interested, but the material is actually literally life and death. And uh, I spoke with a man, Dave Warnock, fascinating individual, and I hope that you guys will check that podcast out. Something else I wanted to kind of throw out here for the general audience uh, who comes along and listens to my stuff here. Um, Sometimes, you know, I foray into uh, political rhetoric or political talk, um, give my opinions about it, give uh, data about it, whatever. To me, and I know this is not true of everybody. In fact, there are no other Scientology critics I know of who who particularly, you know, go drawing political comparisons. Um, but I do. And uh, the way I see it, uh, cults and religion and politics all go together like PB and J. <laughs> you know, they're like, I mean, how do you know, how can you talk about one without talking about the other in the United States, at least? It, I, I, do, I don't know how to do it. And, um, People who tell me to stay in my lane, and people have literally said those exact words to me about politics and other subjects that I get involved in, um, either don't understand what me and my channel are about, (laughs) or um, they are just, you know, I don't know, trolling or something, because um, I'm going to talk about what I'm going to talk about on this channel and on my shows, and I know not everybody's going to agree with everything that I say, and I am totally okay with that, Um, but I hope that even if you don't agree, in fact, especially if you don't agree, uh, you could respectfully state your disagreements with my arguments, not with me as an individual, (laughs) in the comment section, and that might encourage me to respond. Uh, Sometimes I get a little snarky in the comments. That is true. I have done that. Uh, But that's almost always in... in, reply to snark sent to me. So anyway, let's uh, let, maybe we could just not do the whole tit-for-tat thing and just have, uh, you know, conversation instead. I, I really will do my level best. I really will. You can always count on that. And if I screw up and it gets pointed out to me that I screwed up, I usually see it and I'm usually okay with being told that I've screwed up on something if I truly have. Uh, and if it's a real factual error, I'll even you know, yank videos. So that, that I've done that uh, before. So anyway, that all being, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there because sometimes I uh, I get a lot of positive commentary, a lot, of co- a lot of positive replies and feedback from you guys, way more than I get negative. It's just my negativity bias kicking in that, um, that I, sometimes the negative has, you know, I feel needs to be a paid attendance to or, or, uh, or given some response. So Anyway, that's some of my response there. Now, uh, we got some interesting questions this week. Uh, oh, and I also wanted to say very quickly, without uh, giving shout-outs by name this time, um, I mean, I'll get to that in the future, but all my Patreon supporters and the ones who have just signed up this last month, uh, very generous support from you guys. Thank you very, very much, each and every one of you. I just wanted to, to at least give that much of a shout-out. All right, so now let's get on with these questions. Z CNS. Do you play? How is music seen in Scientology? For instance, in most public schools, there are several times you're introduced to instruments, offered band, etc. 
Does this happen in the Scientology schools? Are you looked up to or down on for being a musician? For instance, are kids encouraged that music is a waste of time or something? Also, I've seen the tacky, seemingly promotional videos of the officers singing. It looks like a bad rendition of We Are the World. But I understand that Scientology doesn't have a regular weekly service slash meeting, etc. So are there really any Scientology songs? Okay, wow, a lot of, a lot of stuff in this question here. So let me, uh, let me just kind of go from the beginning. No, I do not play uh, any instrument at all. I'm not musically inclined. I would like to be, I used to have a keyboard that uh, would sit behind me in the videos and that was all it would do is it would just sit behind me. I never, I hardly ever got to it. And I finally just went, you know, okay, let's get real. We're not, we're not doing that. We're doing something else. So I quit trying. Um, uh, but as far as music and Scientology, music's huge in Scientology. Scientologists love music and there are <laughs> all kinds of Scientology songs. Do the Scientology schools offer music programs? I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I don't recall one being offered up in uh, Delphi in Oregon, which is the only Scientology school that I've actually been on the grounds of, uh, other than the Apple school that I went to when I was very, very young. Um, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they did or they didn't. Uh, but it wouldn't be because sci if they don't, it's not because Scientologists don't like music or have some problem with teaching music. It's probably just the expense of getting good music teachers. Uh, <laughs> um, so are you looked up to or down on for being a musician? Uh, no, I think if anything, you probably looked up to because Scientologists love to think of themselves, as at least a lot of them do, uh, as very creative people. And Hubbard encouraged a lot of creativity in the arts. He was a writer and he loved writing and he talked a lot about writing and he wrote books about or, or bulletins, at least, about uh, how to do art. And, and the, the things that he wrote about art, some of them are laughably stupid, some of them are, you know, useful or, or have some practical use to them. Um, but all the things that he wrote there, he said applied to all the arts, and he encouraged people to participate in and, and be involved in the arts, because he said that's what raises people up and raises their tone level, and it's the joy of creating. Uh, he had a whole little poem connected with that, um, which was about emotional control and manipulation. So it was kind of mixed in with this message of, you know, the, the greatest joy there is in life is creating, splurge on it. Well, that's, that's great, you know. Um, the forcing yourself to smile part, I'm not so sure about. Uh, as far as uh, the weekly meetings, they actually do have weekly Sunday services. At least they're supposed to. They don't, actually, but at least on their schedules and stuff, they say that they do. And uh, that they do have, at least in Los Angeles, they had a Scientology choir who would come and perform at some of these Sunday services or at Friday night graduations, which also happens every Friday. And those do regularly happen, the Friday night graduations. So there are events and, and activities where they have choral uh, accompaniment or, you know, participation, stuff like that. Uh, and Scientology singers, I mean, actual legit celebrities who are singers are very, very much respected. Um, you know, and Celebrity Center is a, is a type of Scientology organization that caters specifically to celebrities, and that very much includes musicians. And you had, you know, tons of musicians in Scientology's 
history. I've even interviewed a couple on my channel. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, major celebrities, I mean, Isaac Hayes, um, you know, Beck, I mean, he's still a Scientologist. He's current. So uh, anyway, so yes, they're, they're kind of down with all of that. There isn't any, you know, poo-poo bad on the... Uh, on music and and all genres, all you know, all attitudes about it. I mean, they're just really open to that whole thing. So that's that's not one of the down points or one of the cons of of Scientology. John in Parker, Colorado. I have a basic question. Going back to college, can a Scientologist get quote unquote used books from a source or friend? What I'm asking is, does Scientology make people buy new books so as to get full profit? Does Scientology check that you have bought new books? John, this is hilarious because your question actually dredged up a whole pile of memories for me that I had kind of forgotten all about. You know how it is sometimes that a little thing will just like, oh my God, and this flood of memories comes back from when I was in Santa Barbara and in the Sea Org. And those memories, of course, are connected to getting students to buy their materials. Because it is policy in Scientology that all students who, re who go on to a course are to own the materials of the course. And that includes not just one, if you're going on to a course that involves the use of an e-meter, then that's not just one e-meter, you're supposed to buy two of them because you're supposed to have a backup e-meter in case the one that you're using in an auditing session, something goes wrong with it, and you're sitting there auditing this guy, and the meter's broken, and you know it's broken. Well, you can't do anything to audit the guy without the meter, so you're supposed to have your trusty backup ready to go, right? And you just smoothly switch them out and and do the little, this little procedure you get trained to do. And, and, the, and sometimes if you're really smooth and the guy is sitting over there with his eyes closed for some reason, uh, you know, reliving an incident or something, you could switch the meter out and the guy wouldn't even know you'd done it. I mean, so you're supposed to have two. Okay, and, um, and this is thousands of dollars now at this point, right? But also, all the books, all the lectures. Now, uh, that's policy. There's actually, it's, a, it's like a two-line policy letter uh, Hubbard wrote, I think, in the late 60s, 67 or you know, 65 or whatever, called uh, E-Meters and Books for Academy Students. And that was the name of the title of the policy. And I actually used to have this policy pretty much memorized. I, I couldn't give it to you now, but it basically said that all students, no exceptions, were to own their own materials. And this has just been long-standing policy, and that's just how it is. Uh, how we would apply that, at least in places where I was, is if it was a married couple, okay, fine. Yeah, you're going to have one set of materials between the two of you. And we might jokingly try to sell them more e-meters and maybe not so jokingly. You know, well, both of you individually should have two meters because, you know, uh, reasons. <laughs> so uh, we were, uh, as an academy supervisor, as a course room supervisor, and then as an executive over the course rooms, and then as the guy over all the course rooms in the entire Western United States from the management level when I joined the Sea Org, from each of those positions, I was expected to uh, make sure that all of the students in all the classrooms had all of their materials. So this is a real, as you can see, because I just keep going on and on about it, this was a real big deal in Scientology. This is a source of a lot of revenue for them. And it was definitely pushed hard on the public and to the point where you 
do have all the books, all the materials, everything you would need for the class, you already have in the classrooms. They have uh, course administration areas and bookshelves and tons of materials. So you can go into a Scientology classroom and do the study of the, of the course you bought without having any materials. And sometimes they'll let you get away with that. It really depends on the organization and the situation, but uh, the policy is that no, you you can't do that. But they'll, you know, they're not gonna. I've never once saw somebody getting kicked out of the classroom because they either didn't bring their materials or didn't own them in the first place. Never saw that. Um, but this is baked into the organization so much that there are one, two, three, four people that you see, uh, bef- you know, in order to get into the classroom to start a course in Scientology. And each of those four people have been drilled on getting you to buy your, your stuff. So, so, yeah, there's no way to, um, to get around that or anything, and they definitely check on that. Robert Tobias. Is the Church of Scientology required to have municipal inspections and licenses, hotel, food service, birthing for Sea Org, etc., for their properties in L.A. and Clearwater, or, like many other things, have they managed to, quote-unquote, negotiate a way around them? They are required to have all the same inspections that any other building or service, including food service, that sort of thing. All of that is required, and the Church of Scientology, as far as I know, uh, complies to whatever degree with those rules and regulations. I mean, I've saw a straight up OSHA violations all the time, but I'm talking about, for example, like like um, cleanliness in the um, messing area in the in the galley, for example, in, in Los Angeles. Um, we got a uh, in 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 the county or city of Los Angeles. They literally have an A through F grading system for all the restaurants and food service places, grocery stores. All, all this stuff has this A to F labeling, and they can shut you down if you you know if you flunk your food your inspections for sanitation and food quality and stuff like that. Well, they did come around and inspect the the galley of. Uh, Big Blue in Los Angeles, and I think we got like a B or something, and people were up for like three days straight cleaning that entire galley. I remember that thing. It was a, oh God, it was three straight days of scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing down that galley. The whole thing got shut down. I think people were being served pizza because the galley was like, you know, unacceptable. I th- might have even gotten a C. I mean, it, something flunked. It was, a, it was a flap. It was a problem. And uh, anyway, so three straight days of just top to bottom cleaning. And, um, and then the inspector came back and got it. We, of course, passed with flying colors. That was the only time I know of there might there could have very well been other times, but there's the only time I ever heard of when, in the uh, years in the 17 years that I was in the Sea Org that we ever flunked an inspection from the city or from a health official or from any kind of municipal you know oversight. Um, however, the reason for that is because fire inspections, uh, you know, like space inspections, uh, making sure the hallways are clear, all that kind of stuff. Um, sanitation inspections, trash, you know, sanitation inspections, any, anything like that, they always had a heads up that those guys were coming. There was not once that I was aware of that there was a surprise inspection. Even the food service inspection that they flunked, they knew it was coming, and I think they thought they were ready for it, but somehow somebody missed something. So, 
Uh, I think that's what happened on that. I only I was only on the periphery of that whole thing. Anyway, but um, that's, you know, it's the heads up that they get because they have made friendly with the city and with the county and with any other officials that they come into contact with. This is this is the what's called the PR area control, right? Public relations area control. And this is the key function of Scientology's public relations is to prevent any kind of situation like a failed inspection by being in control of both sides of what's going on. You're in control of your space and your area and your building, but you're also in control of those guys, those inspectors who are coming. And you be in control of that by getting the heads up, by making friends with these people, by giving campaign donations or you know funding donations or whatever it's going to take, taking the right people out to lunch, you know, for the police, it's hiring the right cops for the after on off-duty time and paying them well, you know, a, a good amount of money for their protection services during events. You know, they hire off-duty LAPD for that. So it's it's all of those community-type things. It's going to community functions and looking and sounding like a complete idiot, but showing up anyway, so at least you're there. And the church thinks that's kind of enough. It's it's not really there. They, they kind of flunk on this stuff in some pretty significant ways, too. But when it comes to uh, inspections and stuff, as far as my experience goes, they were way on top of this. So that's that's kind of how I understand all that. Preacher 1138. If someone came into Scientology claiming to have been Xenu or the Duke of Chug in a past life and said they wanted to atone for their sins they committed by joining Scientology to help clear the planet, how would Scientology verify their claim? If proven true, how would the church handle them? Would they be allowed to join? I swear if I could get away with it, I would actually try this <laughs> because it would be kind of funny, but it would also be kind of stupid because... As I've gone over before, uh, most Scientologists don't know anything about Xenu, okay? I mean, this is a very funny question, and it's all, you know, it's kind of ridiculous, but let me give you a mildly serious answer, right? Most Scientologists don't know anything about Xenu, never heard of him, don't know anything about it, except maybe what they might have crossflowed or seen or heard on on television or radio or something, and it's just this confusion for them because nowhere in their Scientology materials have they ever seen or heard of this. You don't hear or see about it read about it until you get to OT3. And OT3 is, you know, like 5% of Scientologists get there. So, you know, you're talking 1 in 20 Scientologists are going to, maybe, are going to have heard the word Xenu, read the material, gotten to OT, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, even that's, uh, might be a bit, might even 5% might be a bit uh, liberal on the estimation there. Um, Duke of Chug, I mean, you're talking about a handful of people literally a handful of people in the world that have actually seen the Chug references. Very, very small number of people. I mean, it's more than a handful, maybe maybe 50. I mean, seriously, like who have literally directly had eyes on that uh, at most 100 people in history, right? So, uh, you know, so who's, you know, so you start talking about Duke of Chug and people are just going to look at you like you're, you might as well go in there and say, I was Cleopatra or Jesus Christ or something like that, right? Um, and as far as, you know, and if you then explained who you were, 
well, that's all very interesting. But if you said L. Ron Hubbard wrote about me, if you said I was the Duke of Chug and L. Ron Hubbard wrote about me, somebody might be like, oh, oh, how do you know that? Or what, where did he write about you? Like nobody's going to have seen that issue. It is a extremely high level confidential issue. More, way more confidential than the Xenu stuff, the Duke of Chug stuff. So uh, anyway, so yeah, so, so, so really what would end up happening is the joke would just fall really dead because uh, nobody would really understand what you're talking about. And anybody who did understand what you were talking about would kick you out just like that. They'd be like, oh, you were Xenu. Okay, yeah, let's, let's go, buddy. You know, just out the door with you. Now, nobody would give you the time of day is, is basically what would really happen. Odelia. I have a question that rose from the last podcast you did. How do you know for sure that Osa is listening to your podcasts? Are you 100% sure about it? I would think that if I were an Osa staff member and was constantly listening to all these master works that you're regularly putting out, I would think twice about continuing in Scientology. After all, the staff are eating lots of crow and humiliated for nothing and sleep deprived, etc. What benefits do they have? I have a hard time thinking how a normal person in his senses could continue there after all the bombarding information that they listen to. They could think, oh, what a bunch of bad news and entheta about Scientology, but I'm sure that from all of the sorted information there would be, even if one point, they could cause them to make a switch and start their critical thinking that have been so abused. Further, I assume that if they're listening to you, they're listening to all the rest too. It seems next to impossible to continue conducting routine work and think straight. Do you know of any such event that you helped a staff member to get out of there? Okay, lots here. So, no, I'm not 100% sure. I wouldn't stake my life, for example, on the idea that OSA is listening to every word that I say. However, I understand that they maintain a pretty good, uh, you know, tabs on all the critics, all the work that we put out, you know, what we're saying. And so the only way for them to be able to keep tabs like that is to either watch the videos, uh, read the transcripts of the videos, <laughs> like look at the, you know, show notes or whatever. I mean, somehow they're going to have to get some idea of, of all the content that's being put out. And they are meticulous and they are detailed and they do have the time and resources to do this kind of thing. Because the thing about the OSA guys is, they don't have anything else to do all day except this kind of stuff. This is their job, at least for a couple of them it is. Uh, as far as whether they're actually having Sea Org members listening to every single one of our, um, you know, and by our, I mean not just me, but all the Scientology critics, whether they're reading every article, watching every video, I can't say for sure. I don't know how it's organized up, but I do know that they monitor these lines. That I do know for sure. And Karen has spoken about this, of course, and she worked at the Office of Special Affairs. So I take her word for it that, you know, they're keeping a finger on the pulse of the credit community uh, because they, like I said, don't really have a whole lot else to do all day. Um, now, as far as the things you just mentioned here about there being doubts raised about that, well, this is why they'll either hire people to do it uh, and maybe tell them to, or instruct them to look for certain key ideas or, you know, threats or something that they're looking for and otherwise just write reports about what the person basically said in their, you know, video or, I mean, that's how I would do it. What are the, what's the basic two, three line summary you can get from this if, if you can reduce it down that much? 
Uh, maybe you shouldn't be able to. I mean, maybe it would be longer than that. But whatever, you know, how can you summarize this information, put it into a database, you know, it kind of, you know, index it, etc. I mean, that's how they keep tra- tabs on all this stuff. And they use computers and stuff to, to keep track of this. And they also really, really monitor connections. They love knowing who knows who, who's connected to who, who's influencing who, because this is their influence web so that they can, you know, look at, okay, well, if this guy is influencing these three people and they're influencing, you know, these 20, then if we can get one of the middlemen, we can get to them and get them turned or get them disrupted or something, then we disrupt this whole network, right? This is why they keep tabs on this stuff. And they also like to, they're obsessed with finding out where, uh, the enemy lines that we spew, as far as they're concerned, saying things like the staff don't make enough money to live, to them, that's an enemy line. And that must have come from some suppressive person. And so they want to always trace down where these things are coming from, right? So they're kind of obsessive about that because Hubbard was. Okay, um, so here's the thing about the Office of Special Affairs guys, though. Every person in the Sea Org who is in the Office of Special Affairs wants to be there. Okay, this is crucial. It's a very, very important requirement. They are already Scientologists. They are already Sea Org members. They are hardcore. They are fanatical, as dedicated as you can get. And then they go, yes, I want to work in the Office of Special Affairs. I want to be in the Internet unit or I want to be over, you know, these people. So this is somebody who's already got a gumption to want to, you know, deal with and take out critics and and bad people and and us and theta horrible folks, right? They perceive that we are literally enemies of humanity. So, uh, so that's how they see their job. They see themselves as crusaders, as 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 Jedi knights, right? As as Neo in the Matrix. I mean, they see themselves as the, as on the side of Zion, right? Like they are. That's the positioning and framing of their worldview. So, uh, so everything we say are calculated lies that are being fed to us or that we're inventing ourselves, us critics, in order to, you know, tell you guys about. And so they've already got shields up, walls up, everything's, you know, nothing's going to get through them sort of thing. The, the way you bust through that, of course, is that something has to happen to them personally, there has to be some personal betrayal, and then they turn. Because I have had former OSA staff on this channel. I've interviewed them. I've talked to them about this, and they said, "Yeah, when you're, you know, when you're going through this material, or you're looking at the critics like me and what we have to say, or Leah and Mike, and you know, I mean, the heavy hitters, you know, not just me. Um, they're, you know, they're not tuned in to accept this information as true. Everything we say is automatically rejected." Right, but if something happens to them personally, which it almost inevitably is going to, uh, because the nature of the Scientology and the Sea Org, eventually there's some something. Not that they necessarily hear or see from us, but something Scientology does that gets them to go, "Oh my God, what, what?" And then connections start happening. Right, then the then the walls start coming down, and the the mental barriers start coming down because now they feel that they have been victimized somehow. And they have been, probably, sent to the RPF, made to stay up for days on end, the sleep deprivation, etc. right? All of those things become horrible when the truth of the situation starts coming to light that you are 
being victimized and you were being used, you, you know, that you as a Sea Org member, you're just a pawn in somebody else's game. And your whole, you know, vision of, of being a Jedi Knight or, or Neo or something just kind of disappears when you are faced with the stark reality of wearing blue, you know, black and gray in the RPF for the next three to five years. I mean, that kind of stuff is a real wake-up call. And you really start looking at, like, oh, and realigning what's been going on. And you see that, you know, what you've been telling yourself is really just a bunch of crap. So that's how the wake-up starts happening. And, the, you know, the epitome of this, not somebody I worked with, but the epitome of this is Mike Render. He was the head of the Office of Special Affairs. He was at the top, and he, and he was there for years. And then he got busted, and he was put in the hole, and he was there for years. Um, you know, a lot of physical, emotional, psychological degradation and abuse. And he still stuck with it because of this idea that, you know, you're one of the elite, one of the hardcore, one of the people saving the world. And you just need to get through this, this time period of awfulness and you have the rest of, you know, your eternity as a Scientologist and Sea Org member to salvage this planet, get your own life in order, you know, get up the bridge, get OT, make all these wonderful things happen. You know, these little setbacks like ending up in the hole, uh, you know, well, we'll deal with that. So, and he tried to deal with that until... It just became obvious after months and years of, of degrading behavior and abuse. Oh, finally the light dawned, you know, when he was over in the UK. And he realized, oh, I don't have to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that. I can't go back to that. You know, because reality suddenly hit. And that kind of epiphany, you know, type moment is what every single cult member has to have. They have to have some kind of wake-up call like that, and it's almost always a personal one. doesn't have to be. could be a, a, a loved one of theirs is victimized or something, too, and they are right there watching it happen, and that's their wake-up call, right? It could be, you know, so, so those kind of bonds can, can also uh, trigger somebody's, you know, empathy and emotions and compassion. So that's kind of how all that works. Didn't mean to go on that whole roll about that, but it seemed appropriate to the question. So this is why the, the OSA guys who were assigned to this work are not the kind of people who are going to crack. Or they, like I said, they farm it out to non-Scientologists who just have things that they're looking for. And that's what they do. That may or may not be true. I'm just telling you, you know, one scenario of what I think they might do in order to organize this. They could have this whole thing organized up completely differently. But the one thing I know that they have to do in OSA when they're monitoring our stuff is they have to have an OT to do it. Because we're sitting here talking Xenu and Duke of Chug and all this stuff like all the time. We just drop these references all over the place. Uh, Zenu, 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 you know, well, some lower level Scientologists can't hear that because that's OT material. So they have to have OTs and they don't have a lot of OTs to, to, to you know, do this work uh, in the Office of Special Affairs. So I think that's one reason why they might farm it out to public or, um, or hired, you know, uh, people. Okay, so um, there you go. <laughs> Flash answer time. Venom Dust 1. Because of his growing paranoia, do you think David Miscavige has built his own prison? He would never leave an area that was not under Scientology, his, control. So in a way, has he trapped himself too? 
Yes, I absolutely believe that is true. Uh, I cannot think of a person more deserving of a personal prison than David Miscavige, uh, given how many people he has victimized, uh, you know, himself. Uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much his situation is he is definitely, definitely deep in his own little bubble world. Momo Vivi. In Scientology, is there any policy in regards to pets for members who live on their properties? Yeah, you don't get pets. If in certain circumstances I saw some Sea Org members, um, I think I saw somebody one time with a fishbowl, and I think I heard somebody who had a little bird in a cage. I think that was an older woman, an older senior citizen Sea Org member. Um, but generally speaking, there are no pets in the Sea Org. David Miscavige is the one and only exception with his little beagle. Tyler Simmons. If David Miscavige became president of the United States, how would you react? Would it be worse than Donald Trump? How would I react? No. No. It's not true. That's impossible. Would it be worse than Donald Trump? Yes, it actually would be because um, Trump's is not an organized, smart person. He's a cunning, crafty individual who has spent his entire life taking advantage of other people and, and literally learned how to do that uh, as a young man, very similar to David Miscavige in many, many ways. But Miscavige is much, much, much more organized in his thinking and is uh, more ruthless than Donald Trump is. Uh, so that would be uh, very, very, very problematic for the United States. Okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thanks very much for coming around and listening to me blather on here. If you find my show and the information I give here informative, educational, and entertaining, and I hope you do, please consider joining me on Patreon to help support this channel, keep the lights on, keep the show going, and keep me uh, going uh, so I can get the research and work done uh, to give to you guys. So thanks for coming around again, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.